Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than doing for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. I've got a question. Um, how many of you here like to watch documentaries from time to time? Yeah? yeah, a good amount of you like to enjoy watching documentaries. I enjoy watching them myself. Um, though I don't know if enjoy would be the right word for my experience in watching two recently released documentary series. Over the past few weeks, I've watched Shiny Happy People, Duggar Family Secrets, and The Secrets of Hillsong. Now, what you'll notice there is that both of them are about secrets. And as you would probably expect, they're not the good kind. And that's not all they have in common. The Duggar family of the show, 19 Kids and Counting, prominently presented themselves as a model of a Christian family. Hillsong is an Australian megachurch that has spread across the globe and produced countless Christian songs. I don't have time and I don't need to get into the specifics of their secrets, it's enough to say that they are guilty of the actions that are completely contrary to Jesus Christ. It's their hypocrisy that is noteworthy. Now, if you watch these docuseries, you'll find yourself being disgusted, disappointed, and frustrated. Frustrated because of the evil. Frustrated also because the producers of these documentaries carelessly scandalize some orthodox Christian beliefs and innocent believers. Frustrated because, on second thought, it's not really the producers that have scandalized the gospel, but the subjects of these documentaries who have done wicked things under the name of Jesus Christ. Their guilt and shame is passed onto all of us. Now, it's not fair, but it should give us resolve. We will not be like them. More than this, better than this, we will be like Jesus Christ.
In so many words, that's what Peter's teaching us to do in this letter. He's teaching us what it means to be different. In chapter 2, he tells us, in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now those words alone are enough to signal that we're to be different. I especially enjoy how the King James Version translation renders God's special possession as peculiar people. If we are God's special possession, if we truly belong to God, we will certainly be a peculiar people. Peculiar in all the best ways possible. Peter has addressed how as we're supposed to relate to governmental authorities, earthly masters, and how spouses should live with one another as Christian believers. And now, in verse 8, he addresses all Christians. He says, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. The first thing to just recognize here, that in saying you, the you that he's addressing here, saying all of you, the you he's talking about is the church. He's telling the believers that they, they ought to be like-minded, that they ought to be sympathetic, that they ought to love one another and be compassionate and humble toward one another. And when he says be like-minded, it doesn't mean a strict uniformity on everything, but it's this idea of being commonly minded, having the common good, the mutual good in mind, not being selfish in your motivations. Now, I think he could have simply said, love one another, because love encompasses all these things. Love isn't selfish. Love would drive us to be sympathetic to one another and to be compassionate and humble, but he's teasing these things out. And this command for us to love one another is something that he received directly from Jesus Christ. In John 13, verses 34 through 35, Jesus tells his disciples this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Notice what Jesus says here. He doesn't say, oh, you, they'll know that you're my disciples if you're great teachers, if you're great debaters, or even if you do great charitable works out in the community. As good as all those things may be, properly understood. No, he doesn't say that's how people will know that we're the disciples of Jesus. He says that the world will know that we're his disciples when we love each other in the way that we ought to. Our identity in Christ begins right here. And if we can't love each other, it's kind of like game over. People aren't going to believe that you're truly a disciple of Jesus if we can't treat each other right. And that's basically what's happened in those documentaries. It's a documentary recording how Christians have failed 
to love one another. Now, Paul offers some further characteristics of what it looks like to love one another as Christians. And Romans, and also in Ephesians. In Romans 12, verses 14 through 16, 15 through 16, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. The love of Jesus Christ drives us to love all people, irrespective of their social status. And it drives us to be with people in the best of times and also in the worst of times. In Ephesians, he says in Ephesians 4, verse 2, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another and love. Love is patient. We hear him say that in 1 Corinthians as well. And then further down in verse 32, he says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. We have to be willing to forgive each other if we truly want love one another. Because it's by the love of God that we've received in Jesus Christ that we ourselves have been forgiven. And overall, the idea here is this, is that we're in it, we're in this for us. We're not in this for me. Everything that Peter is telling us here is anti-egoist, anti-narcissist, anti individualistic. We're called to care for one another just as we would care for ourselves. Moving on into verse 9, Peter then gives an, an, an instruction that can apply equally both to the church and also to the, the relation of believers with those outside the church. He says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Now hopefully, within the church, members of the body of Christ are not inflicting evil upon one another. And so it's safe to assume here that now Peter's kind of pivoting more to how Christians are going to relate to those who are non-Christians. What's going to happen when the outside world begins to treat you badly and wrongly. Peter says, we ought not to respond in kind. We should not repay evil with evil. We should not return insults with insults. Two wrongs don't make a right, basically, here. And again, Peter is not coming up with this on his own. He's just passing on what he's heard from Jesus. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, verses 38 through 45, he says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Basically, repay evil for evil. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's our blessing. It's easy to miss here, but that's our blessing here as we've been joined to Jesus Christ. That we may be children of our Father in heaven. And so, what does a good child do? But follow in the footsteps of their father, assuming he's a good, a good father. And of course, our Heavenly Father is perfectly good. And what do we see him do? Jesus tells us. He says, that he shows grace and blessing both to those who are evil and who are good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. He shows a common grace to all. And so we should do likewise. If we're called to be like God our Father, we are called to love not just those who love us, but to also love our enemies. Basically, not to take revenge. It doesn't mean that you have to stand there and take it. If you're in a dangerous position, get out of there. But the idea is, is do not take revenge. Do not return evil with evil. Now, this is very difficult for us, obviously. It goes, everything, it goes against everything in our, our nature. We want to punch back. Um, and I think very often, uh, this can kind of tie into some issues of pride. We think, well, I'm above taking any insult. That if anyone's going to hurt me, if anyone's going to say a bad word about me, well, they'll find out. Um, and, I, and I think this, this increases all the more as Christians, the more that we are removed from suffering. Other Christians around the world have had to deal with this on a daily basis. And so they've become trained in and following Jesus' command here. But for Christian, Christians in America, I don't think we're so accustomed to this. And so when it begins to crop up, we want to strike back because we're unpracticed. And so we respond badly when it does arise. Now, in 1 Corinthians 4, we find kind of this interesting passage from Paul. He's talking to the Christians in Corinth, and there's a little bit of bickering going back and forth, a little bit of um, strutting about among them because some of them are being prideful about, oh, I was baptized by Paul. I'm a follower of Paul. Oh, I'm a follower of Apollos. And they're, they're just consumed with kind of inflating themselves with pride. They're not being humble at all. They're not being what... Peter's calling Christians to be here, and what Paul has called Christians to be elsewhere, which is humble and patient and kind to one another. And in this passage, um, Paul takes up kind of a sarcastic tone, and he does this to just demonstrate how ridiculous their pride is because of what he himself is suffering as an apostle. And what he suffers as an apostle goes right along with what Peter and Jesus is saying here about how we're not supposed to repay evil for evil. 
So in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 16, Paul says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we might also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. So Paul's identified himself as, I'm your spiritual father in the faith. You ought to imitate me. And what is he calling them to imitate? But his humble, his humble attitude, his, hum, his humble posture to the faith. For he does not think that he's above suffering for Jesus Christ. He's not clamoring for high position and esteem. He's willing to be treated like the garbage of the world, and yet not treat others like garbage. You see, if we ask, you know, well, why should I act like this? You know, well, we ha- only have to look to example of the apostles. If they weren't above this, why would we ever think that we're above this? Now Peter goes on and he quotes Psalm 34 and verses 10 through 12. And the point that he makes here in quoting this passage is that is to make that is to point out that blessing comes from pursuing good, not from getting even. In Psalm 34, verses 11 through 16, it says pretty much exactly word for word. It says, Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. What stands out here in this psalm is the the intentionality that the psalmist is calling for here. We don't just happen to avoid evil. We have to turn away from it and do good. Peace doesn't just happen to appear. We need to seek peace. And not only seek peace, but also pursue it. Peace must be made. And this, I think, cuts against kind of the attitude some of us can have when, you know, we're kind of in an argument with somebody. Um, 
the relationship is kind of off, and some of us just kind of take this attitude, well, it just is what it is. And we just kind of let it fester and sit there. Now, that sh certainly should not be allowed to continue if we're talking about relationships between believers. But it also shouldn't be the case with our relationships with those outside of Christ as well, with non-believers. We ought to seek peace with whoever's in our life. Now, sometimes it's not, it's not possible. Some, sometimes you know, we can do our utmost and people are just, uh, they, they want, they're fixed and determined to be our enemies. And Paul recognizes this in Romans 12, 18 through 21. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So a lot of times we can focus on kind of the qualifications here because he does recognize that you won't be able to live at peace with everyone because sometimes they just don't want to go along with it. But let us not miss what he's saying here is that the status quo, the standard here is that we should live at peace with everyone as much as it is possible. And he goes on and says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, the Christian does not need to worry about getting even, about taking vengeance, his Christian knows that his Father is all-powerful, that God is all-powerful, and that there will be a judgment day in which people will have to answer for what they've done. And either they will be covered by the blood of Christ, and they'll be forgiven, and we can't protest about that because we've been covered by the same grace, or they will face judgment, and they will answer for what they've done. You notice here, back in that psalm, in Psalm 34, and of course what Peter's saying here in verse 12 as he's quoting it, he notes how the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You don't want to be in that position. Um, we hear in Numbers 6, verses 24 through 26, that blessing the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you. That's the only kind of interaction we want to have with God's face, that his face is shining on us, blessing us. But if his face is against us, it's disastrous for us unless we repent. As Christians, if we do what is good, if we treat others with kindness, then Peter believes this will lend itself to us enjoying peace. So he's calling for peace. Paul's calling for us to live at peace with others. Jesus is as well. If we, if we treat others in the way that they're calling for, they're saying peace should happen. In verse 13 he says, Who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? And for me, this brings to mind... Um, Proverbs 15.1, where it says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up 
anger. It's like sometimes, sometimes we, we can be, when we're not thinking, and we just respond kind to kind, we make a situation work by just kind of adding fuel to the fire, by making things hotter rather than cooling things down with a gentle word. If we do good, if we show this kind of gentleness and, and kindness, things should cool down. But it won't always happen. And so in verse 14, he says, But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Now, the reason why Peter says that we're blessed here is because Jesus tells us that we are blessed. Now, Peter had talked about this earlier in chapter 2. In verse 19, he says, For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. And again, he's just passing on the teaching of Jesus. In his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5.10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we suffer for the sake of righteousness, we can feel like we're losers. We can feel like evil is winning. But we know who's going to have the final say. God is. That Christ is going to return and make all things new. And on that day, we will, end, we will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And this blessing, this inheritance of God's kingdom, is the exact reason why Peter says, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Now again, just as you know, in the case of not, you know, don't repaying evil for evil, just as that's more easily said than done, so it is here. It's easy to say, oh, don't be afraid, compared to actually not being afraid. Everything today is saturated with fear. People are afraid about the government. They're afraid about the progress of technology and it going out of control. We're afraid about all the huge corporations and their schemes with using money for bad ends. We're, we're fearful because of all the social upheaval that goes on. And kind of the two options that we have, is the two basic responses that we usually look towards is to fight or to take flight. Be quiet, stay hidden, or the opposite, strike back. That's not what we're called to do in Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we're called to wait upon the Lord. To, to not fear. To not take matters into our own hands, but to trust in God. Now, the prophet Isaiah lived during a time in which people were taking things into their own hands, um, trusting in their own powers, pursuing false gods, just basically going astray. In Isaiah 8, verses 11 through 14a, he, he talks about how God has given him some specific instructions about how he is supposed to live. And I use the New Living Translation here because I think it just puts it just right. 
and communicating to kind of our situation today. There Isaiah says, The Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else does. He said, Don't call everything a conspiracy like they do. And don't live in dread of what frightens them. Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He is the one you should fear. He is the one who should make you tremble. He will keep you safe. You see, our problem as human beings is we fear all the wrong things. We get wrapped up in conspiracies to one degree or another. We fear all the wrong things and we trust all the wrong people and all the wrong powers. We need to trust the Lord of heaven's armies. We need to fear the one who is all-powerful, the one and trust in the one who will truly keep us safe. Jesus talks about this in, his, in Matthew's Gospel and in the Gospel of John. In Matthew 10.28, Jesus reminds us that God is more powerful than any earthly power. He says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We should have a proper fear of God. We should have a proper appreciation that He is the judge. Because we always, we can't live life without thinking about someone judging us. We always have to live under some authority. And the question is, under what authority will we live? Which judge shall we fear? And so many people fear the judges of this world more than they fear our heavenly judge, the true judge. But there's also comfort here as well because he is a good judge. He's our, he's our father. In John 14, 1, and also in verse 27, Jesus tells his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You see, the world cannot give us peace. The world can only give us things to be afraid about. Only Jesus can give us peace. He can stop our hearts from, from being troubled as we trust in Him. And this reminds us of what Peter told us in 1 Peter 1, of how we're supposed to live as foreigners here. If we're not depending on what the world gives, we're depending on what the kingdom of God gives. In 1 Peter 1, 17, he says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. That's our status here in this world. We don't trust in the worldly powers. We don't trust in the presidents of any nation or of any king's. We only trust in the king of kings. And so from this posture of, of fearlessness, Peter then calls us to readiness. In verse 15, he says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asked you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now notice here he doesn't say, Always be prepared to give a dissertation to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope 
that you have. Peter's not calling you to have a PhD in theology. Nothing wrong with that. That's, that's good. But I think so, so often when we think about explaining our faith to others, we just feel overwhelmed by the task. And we feel we have to reach, reach the heights of Mount Everest before we could possibly talk to somebody. That's just not, that's not true. All we're called to do is to be prepared to give an answer, to give some modest explanation of why we believe what we believe. Our, if, you know, if someone came to you and asked, why do you follow Jesus? Why do you believe in him? What would you say to them? Can you say something more than just, well, it makes me feel good? Because we, our, our, our understanding of, of Christ is not that he's merely just kind of like a, a spiritual pharmaceutical for us. We believe that he was born, that he died, and that he raised again. There's some very basic objective claims that we're making. So we have to say that we believe that this is true, not just for me, not just my truth. This is true for everyone that Jesus is king of kings and that he's raised from the dead. So why do you believe that this is true? Now, maybe you're not, you're not ready to give an answer on that, and, and that's okay. It takes time for us to grow in our preparedness. And truth be told, you have so many resources at your fingertips, more resources than any generation past ever had at their hands. And, and we try to make those resources available here through the church. That's why we offer the Crucial Studies seminar, so that you can grow in your knowledge. And you're not going to get there just you know, by going to one seminar and something like, okay, I'm all set. It's not... You never stop learning. You never stop preparing to be ready. This is a call to lifelong learning, to lifelong faithfulness, and, and really depending on the Holy Spirit to make you ready in those circumstances. Because you can learn all the things in the world, but it won't do you a lick of good unless you have the whole help of the Holy Spirit guiding you in what you should say in that moment. And we also need the Holy Spirit not only to help us with what we say, but how we say what we say. We're not just concerned with content, we're concerned with form. Peter says, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. we don't approach people with gentleness and respect in our conversations about the faith, they won't care what you have to say because they don't like you. And if they have bad things to say about you because you're behaving badly, in that case, it won't be slander. It'll just be the truth. It's only slander if it's not true what they're saying. It's only slander if you're actually doing good and you're actually being gentle and respectful. 
And Paul kind of expands on this as well in Colossians and also in 2 Timothy. In Colossians 4, 6, he says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. When he talks about it being seasoned with salt, you can think of like tasteful. You can also think that of kind of some of the healing properties of salt. You're trying to make things better. You're not trying to beat someone up. You're not trying to defeat them. And unfortunately in our society today, that's how most, most interactions go. We just interact with people with the purpose of beating them. That's not the Christian purpose. It's to heal them. It's to restore them. It's to bring them to the truth. In 2 Timothy 2, verses 25 through 26, he says, Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Now notice everything that Paul's saying here. We're to gently instruct them because we understand what's going on with them. You see, they're resistant, not just because they're a stubborn person. Maybe they have some stubborn qualities about them, but that's not the real reason. It's because they've been made captive by the devil. And God needs to free them. He needs to grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And so you're not going to get there by just banging them over the head with a, a cast iron pan. That's trusting in your power. And you do not have the power to save anybody. Only God has the power. And so we come to them with gentleness, praying that God will grant them the repentance to turn away from their sin and come to Christ. Not trying to beat up people or trying to guide them to the truth. You see, our actions give context. They offer a framework for people to see our claims, our beliefs, in the right light. We all understand that some of our Christian beliefs, when simply stated, maybe when written down on paper, when people see them, they think, oh, they're, they're narrow-minded. They're hateful. They're bigoted. They're so exclusive. If you act mean, if you act like a jerk, then that will confirm that in their minds. You can be firm, resolute, unshakable in your convictions without being mean. If you're kind, it's going to make them start to think twice. Start to think things over. Things aren't adding up in their understanding of who you are. The last thing we want others to say of our opponents when they begin to slander us is that they're kind of right. He's a jerk. Don't want them thinking that. We want people to see this slander as foolish because we're good people. Now when we do everything, when we're able to give sound reasons for our faith in a gracious manner, 
and when we respond with kindness to rudeness, we may still continue to be treated badly after all of that. It's then that a real question can rise in our minds. Is this really worth it? Peter anticipates this and and closes this section with verses 17 and 18. He says, For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Now again, when, when we begin to suffer, we're tempted to resort to doing evil. Repaying evil with evil. But again, Peter's reminding us here that it's better to suffer for doing good. Now, that's just kind of naturally so, because honestly, when you start just repaying evil for evil, you get in a cycle of revenge. It doesn't make things better. It just makes things worse. I also notice here that he says it is better if it's God's will for us to suffer. It's better if it's God's will for us to suffer for us to then go ahead and pass through that suffering. The truth is, is that God is going to take you through some valleys in life. A lot of times people have this idea of being God's will as, well, if things are going really well in my life and I'm not going through any hard times or anything, then that must mean I'm in God's will because I'm very blessed. And then if things are going really bad and things are getting hard, this can't be God's will because God would never call me to go through some hard times. That's a wrong That's a wrong calculus. That's a wrong understanding. Because remember what Jesus said. God's reign falls on the just and on the unjust, on the good and the bad. Can't measure God's will by that because it it comes to everybody. We know that we're suffering with a purpose if we can understand that we can see God's will in it. Again, we're not supposed to be masochists, you know, just seeking to suffer for suffering's sake. But we understand that sometimes when God is calling us to do something, whether in obedience to the gospel or in obedience to biblical commands, sometimes that will entail suffering. And our reassurance is that there can be a purpose in that. That is not just meaningless. And we can begin to doubt this. You know, you you ask God, why am I going through this? It certainly feels meaningless. And what God does is he points us to Jesus. And that's what Peter does here. He points us to Jesus. He says, take a look at my son. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So if we can recognize the purpose in Jesus' suffering, which was our salvation, then we can recognize that there can be purpose 
in our own suffering. You see, if God did not send his son, there would be a real question whether there is any real meaning to suffering in this world or whether it's all pointless. And it's all certainly meaningless if, if God doesn't exist. If God exists, if God sent his son for our salvation, if God sent his son to a cross for our salvation, then that gives us a whole different lens through which to view our own suffering. That there can be meaning and purpose in this. There can be good that comes out of this, even though we can't see it in the moment. The disciples certainly didn't see the possible good that could come out of it when they saw their master nailed to a cross. But beyond just our own kind of sense of a general purpose that God could have for our suffering, there's a particular sense, I think, in which as we follow Jesus Christ, we're joined to the purpose of his suffering, which is to save the lost. Just as he, he suffered to save us and following after him, we suffer in order that others might be saved as well. And we suffer for the witness of the gospel we're sharing in the cause of Christ. And I think Paul's words in Colossians 1 include this meaning. In Colossians 1.24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Isn't that interesting? Paul talks about there being a lack in regard to Christ's affliction. Now, what he's not saying there is that Jesus didn't suffer enough to save us, and so I've got to kind of have to fill things out here for Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that Jesus suffered in order that the world might be saved. And as an apostle, just as a Christian, we are invited to follow in his footsteps to suffer. And in suffering, what we're doing is bringing the message of salvation to others so that they may respond, so that they may believe. We can't save anyone the way that Jesus saves them, but we can bring that salvation of Christ to them by persevering. We enter the way of suffering for the sake of others. Now this sort of selflessness is exactly what's lacking in the bad Christian characters that have been captured in documentaries. Instead of being selfless, they are in one shape or another extraordinarily selfish. They tarnish the gospel because they fail to even simply love their fellow Christians. And there's plenty of others like them who don't appear on film. And there are plenty of others who have given a poor witness in how they respond to those who don't believe. And we should be clear here. It's, it's, not, it's certainly not right to be wishy-washy in standing for the gospel truth in the name of being nice. And I think Christians can sometimes fall under that temptation. We go, 
we say, well, I want to be nice, and so we kind of get wishy-washy on whether the gospel's true, and we don't want to step on anyone's toes. That's not right. We can condemn that. But we must also condemn those who would claim to be proponents of the gospel, who marshal all kinds of argumentation, but who lack the character of Christ. Jesus doesn't need your arrogance. Jesus doesn't need brawlers. Jesus wants children who walk in his footsteps. Children who are fearless, gentle, respectful, who respond to evil by doing good. Children who revere in their hearts Christ as Lord. Let us pray. Father, our prayer this morning is simple. We ask that you would make us like Jesus. Father, make it so that rather than responding to evil with evil, that we would respond like Jesus did, laying down his life for the sake of others, not striking back against his enemies. Father, we pray that this would begin within the body of Christ, right here in this church community, that we would truly love one another from the heart, so that when people walk into this church, they would know that we are the disciples of your Son. But Father, we also think about our witness to those outside of the church who do not yet believe. Father, grant us the gentleness of Christ, just as much as you grant us the courage of Christ to speak the truth. But help us to speak the truth and love And Father, we do pray that you would grant them the repentance to turn from their sin and to come to you by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to be fearless, Father, because we only fear you, because we trust you, because we trust that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he will have the final say so that we have no need to take revenge. We ask all of this in his name, King Jesus. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon that I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Sistriot, Rhode Island just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through First and Second Peter. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.